No trip to Paris would be, of course, complete without a visit to the great Louvre Museum, where, on view at any given time, are nearly 40,000 works of art from prehistory to modern times. The building itself is a piece of France's great history, too, of course. It was built originally as a medieval fortress in the 12th and 13th centuries. Over time, it grew and expanded to become, by the mid-16th century, the primary residence for the kings of France. But visitors today, any one of the over 10 million that have visited annually in recent years, or the 30,000 that have queued daily, often have one single lady in mind. It's the one with the most mysterious and enigmatic smile in the world, the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is, many say, the most valuable painting in the world. Some reports have placed its insured value at over $800 million as of 2021. One could certainly say it's the most copied, parodied, imitated, analyzed, discussed, and viewed painting in the world. The masterpiece just recently made news again as a visitor attempted a protest by attacking the painting's protective case. But what few people realize today is that on a warm summer morning in 1911, the Mona Lisa was also stolen. Hello, this is Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we look into the world's both light and dark during New York's Gilded Age, Paris's Belle Epoque, and the late Victorian and Edwardian eras of England. And for this episode, we are going to explore a crime. For this tale, let me take you back to a glittering and glamorous world in France. These were the years of Paris's Belle Epoque, the years just before and just after the turn of the century in 1900. The years when the party was still going on before being silenced by the start of World War I. But it was a time of glamour and excitement as Paris saw a burst of artistic creativity and finally now with electricity, the city had become the city of light. Gustave Eiffel's iconic Grand Iron Tower dominated the skyline of Paris and captured the curiosity of the world. The greatest restaurants and the greatest fashions shared the same streets as Parisian life became a kaleidoscope of vibrant color and a new generation of artists splashed paint on canvas to try to capture it all. Paris had become an always-moving, always-shifting stage set, a spectacular production on view for all to see. But let's reconstruct a crime. From the writings and analyses, both at the time and from more modern accounts, this seems to be the story. August 21st, 1911 was a Monday. Mondays, particularly in summer in the center of Paris, seemed quiet and without much energy anywhere. Weekends were the time when Parisians enjoyed the grand city, promenading in the grand parks or raising their glasses in fashionable restaurants and nightclubs. Mondays could be thought as sort of an unofficial day of rest. 
A number of entertainment venues, including museums, were closed on Mondays following their busiest moment of the week, those crowded, bustling Sunday afternoons. The Great Louvre had been France's museum of art belonging to the people since it opened in 1793 post-revolution, and it too, on a summer Monday in 1911, was no different. On Mondays, the Louvre was closed to the public. The great building, with its endless corridors and salons, was open only to workers who came to continue their tasks of restoration or to clean and polish the floors and tidy the galleries before the public would again be admitted on Tuesday morning. One of the most famous galleries in the Louvre was the Salle Carré, or Square Room, This was the gallery that held some of the Louvre's most important pieces of Renaissance old master art. Strolling through the gallery, you could see an impressive collection of works by Giorgione, Correggio, Veronese, Tintoretto, Titian, Raphael, and, if one preferred art from outside Italy, there were paintings by Rubens and Rembrandt. The Italian works were anchored by three works by the great Leonardo da Vinci himself, and the one that most often captured a visitor's eye was the Mona Lisa, called La Joconde by the French. The Mona Lisa has long been among France's artistic holdings, and I promise you we'll get to her history, but on Sunday, August 20th, a typical busy Sunday, she hung undisturbed in her usual place in the Salle Carré. But at just about 8.30 the next day on that Monday morning, however, the director of the Louvre's maintenance staff, a Monsieur Piquet, passed through the gallery and noticed the four dangling hooks and a significantly empty space on the wall. The Mona Lisa was gone. But he'd seen it there himself, hadn't he? Perhaps, well, just an hour before on his earlier saunter through the halls. Modern writers piecing the story together have noted that the extraordinary thing, of course, is that he thought rather little about it. The Louvre had undertaken a massive project of photographing as many of its works as it could for archival purposes. Paintings were regularly removed, transported to the roof studio, photographed, and returned to their places. It was a fairly loosely organized endeavor, so workers were accustomed to seeing periodic barren spaces on the walls, and, well, the museum was closed to the public after all. The space where the Mona Lisa once hung remained empty that entire day, and no one on the Louvre staff, those who noticed it anyway, thought too much about it. The next morning, however, on Tuesday, things changed. A number of artists of the period liked to come to the Louvre, set up their easels, and paint copies of old masterworks to improve their technique. According to one recent retelling, one of the Salle Carré's regulars was the artist Louis Berrault, a painter of growing reputation who had exhibited in the famed Paris Salon and was receiving awards and recognition for his work. He was intent, it seems, on painting a particular scene that of a young girl admiring certain paintings in the Salle Carré's collection. He wanted to make sure that he included the Mona Lisa in his scene. But as he set up his easel and looked toward the wall, he too noticed that the painting was gone. But that was going to be the centerpiece of the work he had come to paint. 
Contacting a nearby guard on duty since the museum was now open to the public, he was told, rather nonchalantly it seems, by a guard, that the painting was likely in the photographer's studios. Perrault became insistent on knowing where the painting was and when it would be returned so that he could resume his work. Having finally been contacted to confirm that the Mona Lisa was in their possession, the photographer and his staff reported that, no, they didn't have the painting. Staff began to search the museum as panic rapidly rose, but the increasingly obvious became clear. It being August, the director of the Louvre was on vacation. The news reached the acting head, Georges Benedict. La Joconde, it appeared, had been stolen. Now, it's hard to imagine news traveling faster in those pre-digital days. And before the Louvre could really do much damage control, the newspapers blasted the inevitable headlines. La Joconda is stolen in Paris, proclaimed the New York Times the next day on August 23rd. And the day after that, a new headline appeared. 60 detectives seek stolen masterpiece. But no clue has yet been discovered. And it was true. Despite being seen apparently only a short time before its theft, the Mona Lisa had disappeared without a trace. Or so it seemed. The level and amount of press internationally that the theft created was in some ways the real story. In a world without any digital media and a case that took months and in fact more than two years to solve, the constant reporting of every detail accompanied by escalating theories and drama elevated the Mona Lisa, a respected, even treasured survivor of the great Leonardo's creation, it elevated it to the most famous painting in the world. The unintentional PR campaign for the Mona Lisa had begun. The theft seemed to be an embarrassment to the Louvre, of course, and it seemed that it gave those criticizing any state-run institutions the opportunity to further cry out against bad management and lax security. Museum directors were, in fact, more concerned with the possibility of fire at this point in history, or members of the public defacing or damaging works of art in political protest. The possibility of theft seemed pretty far down on the list. As a result, most works were hung loosely so that they could be taken down quickly in case danger threatened. The Louvre waited expectantly, as did the press, for some contact from the thief or thieves. Usually, a ransom note or demand for money rapidly followed any art robbery. But days passed, and nothing happened. None appeared. Was the end game of the theft not money? The halls, galleries, closets, cupboards, offices, and storage rooms of the Louvre all were combed by the police for clues. Finally, a service stairway heading out of the museum to one of the inner courtyards yielded a clue. The Mona Lisa had been encased in a wooden protective outer frame covered with glass to prevent damage from vandals. The painting itself was painted on wood and relatively small. Cast quickly aside and lying in the stairwell was the painting's protective frame and glass. What was immediately interesting was that the glass was not broken to free the actual painting and the case had been methodically opened and the painting removed. Clearly, it would seem, by someone who knew how it was made. But more importantly, visible on the glass was every detective's piece of the grail, a fingerprint. The print was noticed by Alphonse Bertillon, 
a French police officer, but also a scientific researcher who had recently developed the process of using body measurements, including fingerprints, to identify criminals. The concept, developed by Bertillon only a couple of years earlier, was certainly in its infancy, but it held great potential. Bertillon's cataloging of the many prints he had collected made any kind of identification difficult and laborious. Nonetheless, prints began to be taken of every current employee of the museum, a slow process which included over 250 people. Art heists and robberies, it's been suggested, capture the imagination of the public like few other news stories. Attention is immediately drawn to the work of art that has been stolen and its artist, whether they had been famous or not. Depending on what clues do or don't exist, speculation explodes as to who the thief or thieves could be and where the looted work actually is. It's been noted that the fact that the Mona Lisa was taken at all is rather curious. It certainly wasn't the most famous painting in the Louvre, and its value from an artistic point of view was really only known to a relatively small circle of connoisseurs and admirers. Interest in the art of old masters waxed and waned throughout the centuries, but then again, there was something about this portrait that gave it such an indescribable quality that even Leonardo himself found that he had trouble letting it go and kept it in his possession until he died. The Mona Lisa is thought to have been painted in roughly 1507, perhaps earlier, and in Florence. It is thought to be a portrait of Lisa Gerardini, the wife of Francesco del Giocondo, hence its French name, La Joconde. One of the mysteries of the painting is that it was a work that remained unfinished for a number of years, and assuming it was a commission, it was never completed and given to the sitter or her family. In 1516, Leonardo was invited to France to work under the patronage of King Francis I and to live near the royal chateau at Amboise. It is believed that Leonardo brought the painting with him and thus began the Mona Lisa's life in France. Leonardo's famous portrait never left France until its theft in 1911. It was a misunderstanding of the painting's actual history that led to an undereducated and ill-informed thief to commit the crime, as we, my friends, will shortly see. Leonardo experimented, as did, of course, so many artists of the Renaissance. He experimented with various effects, always trying to give these flat figures dimension and depth so as to appear as lifelike as possible. Even when he began work on the Mona Lisa, word spread that from a technical point of view, it was an extraordinary painting. Even the great Raphael viewed the painting firsthand and in fact made a sketch of it himself. And then, of course, there was that smile. In order to capture the sly, enigmatic, knowing, slightly amused smile, it's been written that while sitting for the portrait, the subject was entertained by musicians hired by Leonardo or by other amusements to elicit a half-smiling, half-serious expression. Upon Leonardo's death at Amboise in 1519, it is believed that the painting fell into the possession of a pupil of Leonardo's who then sold the work to Francis I, who had so admired and valued da Vinci's work. 
King Francis I brought the painting to his royal chateau at Fontainebleau until Louis XIV brought it to Versailles, where it hung in the years up to the French Revolution. Upon the establishment of the former palace as an art museum in 1797 after the revolution, the Mona Lisa found her way to the walls of the Louvre. At one point in the early 19th century, she was taken from the walls by Napoleon himself, who favored the work and hung it over his bed in the nearby Tuileries Palace, before the Mona Lisa eventually made her way back to the Louvre. And it was a misconception about what Napoleon had done with the painting that led to its theft. And now it's time to take a break so I can refill my teacup. And when I come back, we'll continue the story. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Given the fact that there were virtually no clues or seemingly unuseful ones to the identity of the thief or how the Mona Lisa was taken, dozens of theories sprang up amidst the continuing tremendous coverage and speculation by the press. The shimmering and frothy Belle Epoque was fading and Europe was inching closer to war. Demonstrations of nationalism and patriotism led to outbursts and accusations that perhaps France's political adversary Germany was behind the theft or even another international power. As the wealthy Gilded Age Americans flooded Europe, scarfing up art treasures where money and price were no object, speculation fell on some of the most prominent collectors, including the financier and ruthless art collector J.P. Morgan. The literary and artistic worlds were not spared scrutiny or further accusation either. In a convoluted set of circumstances, the well-known poet Guillaume Apollinaire was accused, as was quite shockingly his friend, the young up-and-coming painter Pablo Picasso. Picasso had first come to Paris in 1900 and had traveled between Spain and Paris regularly in the early years of the 20th century. During the period of 1907 through 1909, Picasso began what is called his African period. During this period, he painted one of his most famous works, the Demoiselles d'Avignon, for which he had used several small sculptures as models that he purchased from an assistant of his friend Apollinaire. Unaware of the history of these small Iberian works, the painter discovered that the sculptures had in fact been stolen from the Louvre. Aware or not, it was an inconvenient moment to have any once-stolen treasures lurking about in one's cabinets. Guillaume Apollinaire, today thought of as one of France's most renowned modernist poets, was of Polish background and, in an emotional outburst at one point, proclaimed that the Louvre should be burned for its former symbolism. Apollinaire went to the police in a preemptive attempt to explain his connection to the stolen statues. Unfortunately, suspicion was raised on his friend Picasso's involvement. Apollinaire was imprisoned for a week, Picasso was brought in, held and questioned, and both ultimately released simply because there was no proof that either of them had any direct involvement, nor was there any connection at all to the theft of the far more famous work. 
the fact that the painting seemed to have been released by an expert from its protective case seemed to point to an inside job and likely wasn't work that would have been done by someone who would have had to struggle with the frame and the glass, thus wasting time and creating a disturbance. Police questioned all levels of Louvre staff, and on one occasion in their process, visited the apartment of an Italian immigrant, Vincenzo Perugia, who had been employed by the glass company that had worked at the Louvre to outfit various paintings with their protective cases. Perhaps he could offer some insight. The police visited Perugia at his small apartment in the 10th arrondissement on the Rue Hôpital Saint-Louis, about a 30-minute walk from the Louvre. No, he couldn't offer much helpful information. He was sorry. Just after the officers left, Perugia likely sat back down sweating and let out a long sigh. Across the room, lying under the false bottom of his trunk, lay the Mona Lisa. Vincenzo Perugia was born in Dumenza, Italy, in the far north near the Swiss border. Perugia had come to France to find work, but found his reception, given his strong Italian patriotism and nationality, unwelcome. A house painter and sort of general handyman, he had found a job working for the glass cutters, working with the Louvre, and consequently gained an intimate knowledge of the museum's layout, its holdings, and its security, or lack thereof. It was Perugia's faulty knowledge of the Mona Lisa's true history that led him to commit the crime most theorists believe. Perugia believed that Napoleon had in fact stolen the Mona Lisa himself, and he'd stolen it from Italy in the process of his other looting of Italian treasures and works of art. Perugia wanted to take the painting and return it to its rightful homeland in, at least in his mind, a statement of nationalism and thus gain potential heroic status and no doubt some form of monetary reward would be issued for his heroic endeavor. But since the theft, quite literally, the painting was too hot to handle, given the escalating publicity, and so Perugia kept the Mona Lisa in his apartment, wrapped in cloth, for two years. Historians have noted that as Leonardo's work lay hidden and undisturbed in a worker's dingy apartment, crowds queued daily over at the Louvre to have a look at the empty space on the wall and stare at the four hooks which still dangled in place. Becoming impatient and anxious, it seems, and wanting and needing money, Perugia finally took a chance and wrote to a Florentine art director to whom he felt he could bring the work for some kind of consideration, of course. Perugia had seen advertisements in the Parisian journals placed by the Florentine art dealer and auction house owner Alfonso Geri, who was looking for objects of art to buy. Perugia felt that he was ready to make his move. He wrote Geri a letter saying that he had the Mona Lisa and would bring it to him, rightfully returning her to Italy to hang proudly in the Uffizi, and he signed his letter, Leonardo. Jerry, at first not sure what to make of this, was this another copy? Was this an imposter looking for a payout? He contacted Giovanni Poggi, the director of the Uffizi, for advice. Initially, similarly skeptical, Poggi told Jerry, bring Leonardo to Florence and we'll see what he has. 
When the young man with dark hair and a mustache, calling himself Leonardo, first greeted Jerry and Poggi, the first question the art specialist had, of course, was, but where is the painting? Leonardo had arrived empty-handed. Perugia assured them that it was safe and back in his hotel room. Following him back to the rather run-down hotel and up to his room, Perugia carefully removed the painting for the specialist from under the false bottom of the trunk where it had been for so long. Poggi, immediately suspecting that it was in fact real due to the cracked layers of varnish which would not appear on a modern copy, asked to bring it back to the Uffizi for further study, as he lightly called it. He wanted to stall for as much time as possible. Surprisingly, Perugia agreed, and Jerry and Poggi left, now with the actual Mona Lisa in their possession. After comparing the work with some photographs and further examination, Poggi confirmed that the painting was authentic, and it was in fact Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Perugia, likely relaxing in his hotel room, perhaps contemplating the reward he was to receive and the heroic notoriety with which he would be showered, was surprised by the knock at his door that came shortly thereafter. Stunned, he opened the door to the police who immediately put him under arrest for the theft of the, by now, most famous painting in the world. Perugia was brought to trial and told a version of events of the actual theft, which has been questioned by subsequent sources. He claimed it's been reported that he acted alone, and simply donning one of the workers' white smocks, which he still had from his time there, he walked into the museum through the employee's entrance early that August morning, arousing no suspicion whatsoever. Knowing how the painting was hung and how the protective frame was constructed— He'd built it, after all. He removed it quickly from the wall. Even if he were seen, it would be assumed that he was removing it for photography. And then he wrapped it in another cloth and proceeded to a service stairwell. Finding the door to the courtyard locked, he attempted to remove a doorknob until a real Louvre employee, a plumber, happened along to unlock the outside door. The unsuspecting plumber had just encountered a thief, and a theft in progress. Removing the smock and wrapping the painting in it, it's been suggested that Perugia knew that early lazy Monday morning that he would be barely noticed as he returned to his apartment. And to remind you all, it wasn't until a full 24 hours later that the theft was even discovered. Given the weight of the painting and the frame and the glass at over 200 pounds, investigators have proposed that Perugia didn't act alone. A common assertion is that he entered the museum that day before, on Sunday, with two accomplices, and they spent the entire night in a supply closet before emerging and entering the gallery early that Monday morning to perform the deed. The Italian jury that tried the case was seemingly sympathetic to Perugia's supposed commitment to the nationalistic act of returning a painting to Italy that had never been looted in the first place. His sentence was fairly lenient, just over a year, and in reality, he served only a mere seven months. 
He fought for the Italian cause during World War I, finally returning to France, where he lived quietly as an interior painter out of the eye of publicity with a wife and a daughter until he died at 44 in 1925. The news of the recovery was nearly as explosive and dramatic as that of the theft. Newspapers around the world splashed the news to a surprised public that had in some ways given up the idea of the painting being seen ever again. Following its authentication, the painting hung for two weeks in the Uffizi, and after a brief tour of Italy, was, with great ceremony, returned to the Louvre, where it is, of course, today. The period of over two years while the Mona Lisa lay in Perugia's trunk gave the painting the notoriety of becoming the most famous painting in the world. Not only due to the explosive coverage of the theft, the search, and the recovery, but during that time, the image of Lisa Gherardini became ubiquitous in print, in art, and in the public's memory. Despite its deep significance as an example of Leonardo's talent and innovation, the Mona Lisa in some ways became famous for being very, very famous. Today, with new, of course, modern security measures, including a queuing system that allows a truly brief time in her presence and heavily protected under bulletproof glass, the Mona Lisa still gives out her enigmatic smile from the walls of the Louvre. Only she knows how the theft was truly committed and what really went on in the two years before her recovery. And only she knows what was going on around her as she sat for the great Leonardo that made her smile. Thank you, my listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Patrons receive access to patron-only content, audio previews of upcoming shows, and advance notice of Gilded Gentlemen events. I truly could not continue to do the show without your support. So join me in two weeks for another look beneath the glitter and the gold. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs>